Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Ralph Lister. Ralph has made his name acting on independent films and on the stage, but he's also worked with some of Hollywood's biggest stars. His last major role was in the blockbuster movie Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. In the past seven years, Ralph has also been narrating and directing audiobooks and has recorded over 300 titles and directed 13 others. This conversation was great fun. If you enjoy it, please leave us an iTunes review and I'll be happy to take all the credit. If you hate it, just blame it on Ralph. He's good-looking, rich, and famous. He can take one for the team. Ladies and gentlemen, Ralph Lister. Hello, Francisco, and how very nice to be here with you on this podcast. Welcome to the show, Ralph. How are you doing, sir? Yeah. Daddy has been busy. <laughs> I'm a father. I am a father. Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably safe if you and I agree that the daddy nickname shouldn't come back during this interview. <laughs> it might just let people into the secret that you and I know each other a little bit. Uh... <laughs> Very well. So I have to be serious actor now. I wanted to start by, by telling you that every year on my birthday, my mother likes to remind me that I was born at 9.30 p.m. at the Thomas Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. Where exactly were you born, Ralph? It's uh, a strange story. Um, first of all, I was not meant to be a boy, but uh, meant to be a girl, because my mother ran over a bicyclist in New Delhi, and um, she slightly impaled her pregnant self on the steering wheel and elevated my heartbeat. And in those days, which was 10,000 years ago, it feels like, um, an elevated heartbeat in a, in a soon-to-be-born, they thought would be a girl. And no, I was a boy. <laughs> and I, I, I understand that I was born on the desk of the British High Commissioner in Delhi because it was a bit uh, urgent, um, fast. I was actually child number four, and I think it all happened rather quickly. And I think it, I, I rather suspect that the, the labor began on the desk of the High Commissioner in what was your mother doing in the office of the High Commissioner of the United Kingdom in Delhi? Well, that's a very fine question. Um, I'm not sure we need to answer that question. I wonder. Yes, let's. I, I no, I can't doubt my mother I, because I think I think in in storytelling uh, jargon that is called in media res. So you that is the middle of the action. Something happened before that. <laughs> Because your father well, she, wasn't the high commissioner. <laughs> no, he was not. 
in fact, it was in Delhi that he was recruited, and I can say this now because it's been so many, many, many years that he was actually recruited into our our overseas intelligence service, otherwise known as MI6. And he was actually recruited in Delhi at that point, soon after I was born, uh, soon enough to have had most of the childhood diseases all, all inside of about six months. We we went back to London, and he began his training there at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And then his adventures began as a intelligence gatherer. So your Let father was a spy? Uh, yes. Ooh, that's the short answer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that, that that is probably a story for another day. But but you you are not short of of adventures yourself. I mean, how many how many countries did you go through in the first sort of fifteen years of your life? Oh goodness, it was so many because um, not only was I um, traveling to wherever my parents were located, but I was fairly uh, vigorous in my own desire to travel. I had already, with my parents, traveled most over a great deal of of Europe by the age of 15. Um, the adventures began shortly thereafter. At 16, I hitchhiked to Rome and back through France. And I was an exchange student to Germany. My later life often was also later life. I, mean, I was in my 20s, my young 20s in Spain. Um, but while at university, I, you know, the Greek islands, um, Eastern Europe, Turkey. I was caught in a uh, the 1980 military coup inside Turkey, in the, actually in the eastern part of Turkey. And I remember being uh, getting out of our taxi and seeing a truckload of uh, soldiers who immediately herded us into our hotel, and we were under lockdown there for a few days. But that was another uh, wild adventure that alone. Uh, I remember being on the Russian border and. Uh, doing a silly dance in sight of the Russian observation towers in the distance and giving them the V sign. And that is not the V for victory sign, the other I, V sign. I, I, um, I am familiar with, with the other and V being, sign. <laughs> and uh, being a very silly young man full of joy and uh, adventure during university at Durham, where I was uh, uh, doing a very high class and, shall we say, classical degree in, in modern history and uh, which I enjoy and still enjoy today, which continues to make me a, a follower of world uh, news. And I continue to listen to the BBC World Service on a daily basis. So I, I really can't say, I mean, you know, kindergarten in Vienna, in Austria, um, my father's next posting was to a country then called Rhodesia, hmm. uh, today's Zimbabwe. Then we were in South Africa for a little while. Um, interestingly, my father's um, birthplace and country of origin, he's a natural, he was a natural. My father's been dead for 25 years. He was a naturalized South African and um, it became British, that is. And so we were in South Africa for six months and then went off to, uh, he was posted to Indonesia, which is was a non-aligned state then, um, as they were called. And the Russians were busy loaning the Indonesian government, all kinds of aviation equipment and military hardware, which my father duly went about stealing. And um, we had many an adventure uh, on the islands surrounding Java. Uh, my father was, as you would expect from a man in his line of work, was uh, quite uh, bold, let's just say, 
And we had rented an island for all of, I think it was 25 US dollars a year from the Indonesian government. Um, but we stayed largely with a, an old German refugee, let's call him, a man who had settled on an island and built a beautiful house of, of coral and cement. And he had two dogs and it was beautiful. It was like a, I mean, it was truly a paradise. Um, this is the early 70s. Uh, which is an awful long time ago, which gives you an idea of how venerable I am. Um, after Indonesia, it was uh, back to England for a bit, back to London, which I've always called my my home, really, in the UK, though I, I, I largely consider Oxford to be now my home, uh, where my parents moved to um, and where they had uh, various houses over the years. And I love Oxford. But then we went to Kenya, and now I'm in my teens and, you know, uh, true to form, camping trips, safaris, expeditions that went spectacularly wrong, almost disastrous, uh, you know, stuck in the mountains with absolutely nothing to eat, but tons of water because we were trailing a, a trailer that contained all the water we needed. But the other car in our, uh, in our group, which we'd become separated from, had all the food. <laughs> I mean, it was just classic. So... Uh, that was all before I was age seventeen. Um, have you have you ever written about this stuff, or has your has anyone in your family ever no, written about this? It would. I mean, I, I do have a really a good basis of a memoir or two, but I, I there might be a time uh, when I'm not so busy to, if not write a memoir, write kind of some sort of story. So that's that's possibly to come. Um, so let's talk about some of the stuff that has kept you so busy, um, because I understand that most of the stuff you've been doing for the last few years, that the the audiobooks has have been the the biggest focus in in the last few years. So so this is something I'm I'm always very curious about because I I, I listen to a fair number of audiobooks and having absolutely no voice talent whatsoever, it it always baffles me how not only the reading of it is not anywhere near as easy as a lot of people think it is, but but the voices. So so what I wanted to ask you is how how does one or how do you particularly prepare for that? I mean how do you so you get a commission for a for a book and then you find out how many characters there are and how, what what does that process look like? Well the first thing you've got to do is read the book um and get a good uh handle on obviously the storyline and the characters, the 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 characters that are in the book will, if well, the the, the the writer will give you all kinds of clues that you are looking for, um, what kind of personality they are, what kind of characteristics they have, what what is their overriding, shall we say, attitude or approach? Um, you know, are they bossy? Are they uh, mischievous? Are they uh, indignant? Are they um, afraid? Are they are they old? Are they young? Are they even human? I've read a character which was a female ice monster. I'm not sure how you do a male ice monster to be different from a female ice monster. I think a, I think a friend of mine has married one of those. <laughs> but going back to your question of how do you how do you find a voice uh, for a character? And as I said, the 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 writing will um, convey a lot. Oftentimes, though, not as much as you might like. So you have to uh, 
be inventive, or at least the obligation of an audiobook narrator is to make the book as 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 interesting a listen where possible, as is possible um, for your listener. You don't want a boring read. You have to find a, a an authentic voice for for those characters that serves the purpose, that serves the script. That you have to find a voice that is uh, is fair, is 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 but is alive um, and is attractive and interesting to hear, um, while not being sentimental and yet always being you know vocalizing clearly, even if you put on an accent or if you engage an emotion in your read, which is often a very necessary part of scenes in, in books. You can imagine um, the situation you're, you're in. You're in the room. The, the young boy is lying next to his dying mother. He's whimpering. A doctor comes in. An aunt approaches. There's a tension, there's a dynamic, there's a there's a tenderness you'd need to add to that. And you do that in some ways exactly as I'm doing now. You you slow down, you take your time, you find the right moments, you give the the voice the right emphasis, the right volume. Perhaps it's very, very soft, and you have to know how to manipulate your microphone to 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 get that. And my skill and experience and training as an actor, largely as a stage actor and later as a film actor, of course, lends itself very much to this. So it enables me to, as actors do, fully empathize with the character that is in this circumstance, in this situation. And it, of course, it doesn't always have to be tragic or, you know, it can be joyful and explosive or or awkward which is always delicious you know it could be a man or a woman because i read all the women of course that appear in the books as much as i read the men and boys and creatures or monsters or fairies that might appear i read every single character and i adjust my voice very slightly i lighten it for the women i will age my voice for for the characters all of this then creates an environment that's will keep the listener engaged and interested. And at the end of the chapter, when the, perhaps they have to pause to get on with their, uh, their life instead of listening while they're doing their gardening or driving or working out at the gym or whenever and wherever they listen, perhaps falling to sleep, uh, falling asleep in bed sometimes, they'll pause the, the, the audiobook at the end of the chapter or wherever they choose to. And they have... they. They come away having felt that they were there in that book, in that place, in that room with you. And you're acting as the guide to this. It does, it does take quite a bit of uh, skill, though. I, I apologize. I say that myself. It, I have to make little audio files of, of the voices I give. So when they reappear, I can reference them. So I have continuity and um of the character work and that's very very important um i read some very large works um i say large because they're very long uh, james clavell's shogun and um james clavell's taipan and that was 53 and 54 hours finished hours respectively and each of those books would take approximately uh, a month to record 
um, you know, let's just say five days a week, six or seven hours in the booth. And there might be literally hundreds, hundreds of characters that, that come and go. I don't make even a record anymore of just the one-liners. I would have too many. So any character that looks like it might be recurring, as it were, I will quickly in my notes. Of course, the audiobook listener will never know this. I'm making no, not not while I record. I have to stop for a brief moment and mark down where in the in the recording their voice appeared. So later I can quickly find it and play it back to myself and go, Ah, he sounded like this. All right, he he didn't sound like that, or he wasn't a woman, or or whatever it was, or he speaks like this, or or doesn't. It, what I. I I gave a poor example just then because it's very, very important not to parody uh, any voice, to do a cartoon voice. That's uh, often a mistake that actors come to audiobooks and they, they do parodies of voices rather than true voices. And you have to be authentic because the writer wrote them that way. So you must treat them that way. And there's a real obligation, I think, of, and this is true of acting, not just of audiobook narrators, where you serve the character, you are, you are lended, you're lent that character for the brief duration you have it. And the actor must honour that, and most do. And even if a character seems ridiculous, then you've got to honour that and make him, I, I said ridiculous, but you've got to make him authentically ridiculous in a way that's believable, not a parody. And again, that's, a uh, can be somewhat challenging. I've done a few, uh, a genre called space opera, which is uh, sci-fi in space. And, you know, there's starship captains from all nations. And there's your Frenchman and your Japanese man and your uh, Canadian and there's your Texan. And, then, and, you know, and they're all sometimes written in some ways to be, you know, stereotypical members of their their communities. But it doesn't serve you to make them then be ridiculous. You know, you can ever do the French accent that you sound silly, no? <laughs> yeah. That's just ridiculous. So you don't do that. And you just uh, you just add a, a little sound just to suggest that this man is French, even though we have a problem. You don't make him sound stupid. You know things like that. You you, whereas in cartoons it's always to the ten. You know, it, how, how was that? It's volume up to the eleven. It's up to eleven. Uh, right. So so with with the voices. I mean, again, maybe maybe this is just where my mind goes. But please tell me that you call your friends or your wife pretending to be someone else. <laughs> um. Sometimes when friends call me, um, I do pretend that I'm the Chinese laundry. Okay. <laughs> a classic. Or, or the yeah. Chinese takeaway. And yes. it's, it's, it's all wrong. And I... Yeah. Mobiles I, have ruined that to some extent, haven't they? You, you just... Sorry, who mobile phones. Because before it was yeah, a landline you were calling. That's right. And you could genuinely, you know, pretend uh, that they styled and dialed through to their local Chinese takeaway. Yes. Oh, you want food? You want food? Food? Li Hao Chai, Chinese restaurant. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I, and, 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 and they were going. 
Ralph, I know it's you, mate. It's your mobile phone. Stop yeah, the I'm voice. Gonna, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yes, sorry. Sorry. Oh, uh, you've got something important there. Oh, it's a client. Oh, uh, <laughs> And so something else I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about is that it's fair to say that most of your career in this in, in the cinema has been as a supporting actor, right? And in the major movies, yes. So so this is yeah. So as a supporting actor, but the, the leading roles you had were more independent. The, the, Certainly. And there is something that I, I find fascinating because people, particularly in America, I think perhaps a little less in in the UK, but but in America, there is this idea that everybody wants to be the star. So everybody wants to be the main character. Everybody wants to be at least the main character of their lives. The idea of being a supporting actor doesn't hold as much appeal to a lot of people. But having said that, you know, you've had most of your career as a supporting actor, um, or at least a, a less well-known actor compared to some of the of the people you've worked with. And, you know, from what I can tell, you seem well-resolved happy, not a raging alcoholic or a wife beater. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I believe that perhaps you might have gotten the better end of that Hollywood deal in the sense that you've had a lot of these incredible experiences that, that actors have by, by being around this environment and by being exposed to this type of thing. But you haven't had, I don't think, any of the endless negative things that come with becoming a really you know household name right i mean yeah. completely off the of the mark here well uh, one of the advantages of becoming a well-known household name is you have quite a lot of digits in the bank mm. uh, you have you know you get uh, continuous and often increasingly well-paid work mm. uh, sometimes fantastically well-paid um, there's a very small band of uh, of actors who are paid iniquitous amounts of money. I mean, just monstrous amounts of money. And then there's the 97% of all actors who get paid a working wage as jobbing actors. And, um, you know, every job they need. And um, uh, it's work for hire basis. It's not always very continuous. I mean, once you get a, a reputation as a competent actor and are available, then you can build continuous work. And increasingly as your, uh, let's call it fame, but uh, you're more and more well-known, you can start um, charging somewhat more. And it's only when you hit the big time, and I mean, you're, you're, you break out in a, a major Hollywood, typically, a film, um, do you really come on any sort of decent wage, uh, proper wage? You work for two, three, four weeks on a film and you work, you know, you earn quite good money uh, while you're doing that. But then it stops and you might not have another proper paying job for some months or for the rest of the year even. Um, it's not as ongoing as people think um, unless you make it, shall we say, and unless you have that, you're in that two, three percent band of all actors that have consistent work, and then you are consistently working. And even those people are always looking over their shoulders, um, wondering who's going to pass them by or if they're going to get that next job, uh, if all the life they're leading for this year and the last year is going to continue into the next year. 
or, or, um, if, or if people are going to make fun of them for being Scientologists. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, but then you have the those, you know, the Tom Cruises of the world who not only are extremely well paid, but have their own production businesses and have a stake in the in the movie uh, and a significant stake. And at that point, you're you know very well or very well off you're extremely wealthy but that's 19 that's n nearly none of the actors out there are like that um i am far from rich i mean after about 10 years now of being an audiobook narrator i am considered well established and um i'm you know it's taken me a while but i've become quite capable as a narrator so i am looked for and that's fantastic that's true of actors too. Um, good actors are sought after. Um, people look for them and ask for them. But a lot of the time it's, you know, Ralph, we've got a role. You're going to be one of perhaps 50 actors who's going to audition. Do you want to audition? Um, it's, it's very infrequent that um, you are not up against quite a crowd of other actors, you know, at least 10 others, I would say at a minimum. Interestingly, when I read for Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, the director of that picture really was only interested in interviewing a few actors for his supporting roles. And in fact, I think he only, for the role of Dr. Emmett Vale, which was uh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's sidekick in Batman uh, versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, he only read five actors. And initially, I assumed it would be American. So I read for him in my American voice. And um, he said, no, 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 we, what's your English voice? Uh, and so I read for him in that. And that same evening, casting called me and said, you got the part. So he was a rare director um, to, to interview a few people. And I think he realizes that if a casting director believes there are five actors who are competent for the job, He'll he'll find from five of them, one that he likes more than the others, and um, I think I also benefited from being the first of the of the five that he that he auditioned that that evening, and uh, I was lucky enough to book it, and you know that helped in some ways, but it was as you said only a supporting role, and when I went back to LA in 2016, um, thinking that on the back of Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, I would suddenly have a, the doors would open. It was not even enough to get an agent. I was just considered a day player. Yes, a day player and a major project, but that was all I was. And I was, I wouldn't say heartbroken, but I was very disappointed. And with the audiobooks that kept coming to me, I stepped back uh, from on-camera work. And for the years, just the recent years from 2016, 2019, before I moved to Barcelona with my family, um, I didn't even have an agent in L.A. And I was doing on-camera work with directors and producers and other actors who knew me and liked my, my skills. And so it wasn't that I wasn't keeping busy. And I was keeping very, very busy being an actor as an audiobook narrator, creating characters and recording, you know, every week back to back books it was 
it was good because my income flowed and it made me realize, well, why the heck do I want to be, you know, going out to audition against 50 or 150 other actors for a 10 line role when I don't have to drive across LA and back, wait an hour in the audition room, have four minutes in the room auditioning and then not get that part. So that life of struggle, which I had done from 2000, 2008, when I was first in LA, I set aside because I was now working as a busy audiobook narrator and making a perfectly good income. It struck me as, you know, that was then, and this is what I have to do now. I'm, I, was, I, I got married and my little boy came along and the realities of being a father and a breadwinner made it an essential requirement that I set aside this on-camera dream, let's call it. Let me let me just take you back slightly to, to Dr. Emmett Veil, which I, I know who Dr. Emmett Veil is because I'm a nerd and I've, I've read comics all my life. And weirdly enough, I had I came across him again when I was writing my book on public speaking. Uh, and the reason I came across Dr. Emmett Veil was because I was writing on why Batman is significantly more interesting than Superman. And that's when I came across the, you know, I was looking for kryptonite and the history behind kryptonite. And then I came across this very amusing story, which seems to be apocryphal, that even Jerry Seinfeld has recently mentioned in one of his comedians in Cars Getting Coffee episodes. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, that supposedly kryptonite was invented because the voice actor that did it back in the days and it was still Superman was a radio show. The voice actor was ill and couldn't do Superman for a few episodes. So supposedly they invented Kryptonite to cover him. And that's why he just got someone to sound ill while he, he recovered. Right. But apparently, apparently that's a part. Francisco, you really are a nerd. <laughs> yes. No, 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 no issue. No issue with that. But yeah, I, it's an interesting one because he's again he's clearly not a very well-known character but he is the guy who essentially found and named kryptonite which is an essential part of the superman canon and if i'm not mistaken he also invented metallo which is perhaps a slightly less important part of the superman canon but but my question to you is so so you get that role how much are you meant to go into the source material to prepare that character? Do you just look at the script? How does how did that work for you? You know, I I I didn't. He was a scientist alongside Jesse Eisenberg's character. How true to Emmett Vale the script was to um, the the Superman uh, the Batman canon. I, I can't say. I, being a Hollywood script, it's probably a thousand miles from it in reality. Uh, they don't aim to be accurate. They aim to create entertainment. Um, and that's fair enough. And I didn't do really any research beyond the cursory Google and read a few things. And I did realize that uh, Emmett Vale is actually killed by his own creation in a very Greek tragic way. Um, you know, the monster uh, destroys the, the man who made him. And uh, that is true of Emmett Bell. He is killed by Metallo. To answer your question again, not really. I mean, it, the, the, the character spoke to me. You knew he was somewhat of a 
a mischievous, well, perhaps a bad guy. And I played him like that. And when I was on set, you know, I I consulted with the director and said, well, you know, is this how you, what do you think? Is this the right direction? And Zach goes, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, keep it up. You know, <laughs> keep it up, right? Keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. I've got so much other stuff to do. Don't bother <laughs> me. You know, so again, hard to do the job. Yeah. Um, and so I had some ideas and I'd been teaching a, um, well, not teaching a leading and acting class. And we were analyzing um, scenes from plays largely and looking for intentions and um, the character work. I'm always, always looking to find how can we make this character more interesting while yet remaining true to the intent of the writer and the intent of the scene in which, which we're doing. And so I was very used to, uh, and I apply this to my audiobook work, used to trying to find ways of making the character interesting. And it seemed to me, you know, this guy should be slightly devious, slightly what's he going to be doing? You know, do we trust him? Is he <laughs> is he going to be a bad man? You know, he doesn't say, I, mean, I have very few lines in, in, the, in the piece. Did, Je um, did Jesse Eisenberg mind being typecast as an evil genius? Because he did Mark Zuckerberg and Alex Luthor. Yes, I, 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 we had some good chats, uh, but not about that. Most, you know, major stars, and he is a major star, and he's a very fine actor. He's so sharp, that man. He is super smart boy, super smart man, and I respect his work as an actor very much. We we would talk about anything other than the the, the acting world, really. Uh, most celebrities, you know, they just don't want to talk about that. They're so bored with it. Most other actors, that's all they want to talk about, you know. And so I talk, I remember talking to him at some length about the various places, I, going back to this, where I was buying wine online. And, um, you know, that was much more interesting to him than than and talking it, about. So just so just one final question about that experience. And, and this is a very simple one. Is it fun? I mean, being part of a major blockbuster, I mean, arguably this type of thing, perhaps not necessarily the role you had in there, but but being part of that, I think most actors would, would you know, give an arm for that sort of experience, even though if that's in hope of something that comes after. But is the actual experience of being part of a blockbuster, even one that eventually didn't do so well, at least with the critics, but but is that a fun experience? Yeah, oh, come on. it's It's great. You are treated like royalty. It's just insane. It's like you enter a, a whole nother universe um, from the moment you arrive till the moment you leave. Not the set, but the parking lot. Literally, as you, it's, I mean, I remember I had a bit of a headache on set, and I just mentioned this to some PA, and within literally two minutes, a glass of water, two a Panadol or whatever they were on a little tray just appeared, just like that. I mean, I, I stepped outside. It was slightly raining. Up goes the umbrella, held by someone else, of course. You know, I can't possibly hold an umbrella. I mean, I, I've never held an umbrella in my life, have I? <laughs> so, you know, all sorts of things like this, and they usher you to your, your trailer. And I had a very nice trailer. Thank you very much. I mean, I was a, a, a significant character uh, for the... In, in on that location and we all had nice uh, places to rest and hang out while we weren't actually needed and of course i had a stand-in for when i 
when they were just getting the cameras into the right position and the lighting and all of that. There was a stand-in for Jesse. There was a stand-in for all of the all of the actors. Then they call you. They don't call you. They, uh, Ralph or Mister Liston, perhaps. Uh, you're, you're wanted on set, and they would stand outside and wait for me because they didn't want me wandering off for any reason because their lives depended on it, or their jobs did anyway. And they'd usher you to the set, and then you'd be there, and you'd be all like, well, "Here we are, ready to go." And then they'd, you know, at the end of the day, you'd take off your your costume, your wardrobe, and there'd be someone who'd literally take it from you, take it away to be cleaned or pressed, or or at least kept in the same condition as it was for continuity purposes. And then you would, at the end of the day, sign out. They might have brought you a meal in your trailer if you wanted it, or you would have eaten with the rest of the people, which is much more normal and much more like as life should be, and I like like that. But you, you, it's it's a weird bubble. And I remember at the end of each workday, I would drive off in my old Mercedes that I had, and it was like you just left a dream. It was you just sort of, wow. And I remember being really sad when it was over because I thought, oh, I won't have that until next time. <laughs> and um, so. In some ways, it's a it's a weird Hollywood bubble. So, and so, so what you're saying is that being part of Batman and Superman is significantly better than watching it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, ha- I have to get that in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I I think so. And I mean, um, you were wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> very kind. I'm not on screen a lot, uh, as you can see. Um, though I was booked for uh, seven days a week and then two extra days just for that little time I was on set. You'd never know how much time is, 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 is it takes to, to capture these things and how much money is, is being burnt per minute on a set, which is why they can't have their actors wandering off because the, the, the costs on set are so high with so many people's salaries and rentals and everything. It's just insane. So the the experience is is it's it's a wonderful it's a, a little bit surreal in its way it's very nice working with established actors who are who can be you know your idols in some way um and that's great and you're up working in a scene with them which of course then gives you great material for your for your show reel if you need one or need to improve your reel and you know now you're in a scene with Daniel Day-Lewis, or I wasn't. I wish I would be. Um, I understand that but, he's the one that, that got away, right? Yes, he is. Uh, he is. I'm. I'm. He is my number one idol. I don't think I would get all uh, starstruck uh, in front of many actors, except him and Kate Blanchett. And um, you know, you, you put Tom Cruise in front of me, I'm just like. You're an extremely wealthy, successful actor. Yeah, your work's quite good, but do I admire you in the way I do Daniel Day-Lewis or Kate Blanchett or one or two others? Uh, Anthony Hopkins. I've met Anthony Hopkins on the set of Fracture, actually. And, uh, hi, who are you? Ralph. Hi, I'm Tony. In his slightly Welsh voice that he has, that's gorgeous. I am in awe of of that man as well, of that actor. Uh, terrific um, anyway, I'm gushing. Okay, <laughs> I mean, listen. You know, it, it, if if you're going to be part of that world, and 
be cynical about it, then I guess a big a big part of the fun in it is 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 not there, right? I mean, what's the point of unless you want to be the the big star and have everybody fawning over you at all times? But but the moment you're you're with the biggest actors on the, you know that that ever lived, for all we know, and if that doesn't get you a tiny bit emotional, then you know, what have you replaced for your heart? Have you become Metallo now? Uh, <laughs> you got kryptonite no, I, for a heart. I look for and enjoy and admire great acting work very much still. I have not become in any way cynical about the the excellence of the acting craft. Um, I am still striving to be a better actor. I think I'm still learning to be a better actor as I continue to observe the human condition uh, faithfully and incorporate it into my work um, on screen and in audiobooks, I do think that being an actor is a lifelong process and a lifelong journey. And you, you keep absorbing and learning and adjusting and hopefully improving. That sounds like a perfect note to end on. And I know you and I could trade stories for quite a while, but both both of us have small children that are locked outside the, our respective rooms right now. Francisco, um, this has been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope I... So what's the, what's the best place for people to find you? They can follow me easily on all of the usual places, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I have a professional Facebook page um, as well. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I have my ralphlister.com acting site. It's a little out of date, but there we are. I also have my ralphlistervoice.com audiobook website, which both are still up. People can reach me through that or through Twitter. Or Don't be shy. I have quite a few fans, I, I admit, and I respond to pretty much all of them, um, even if it's not the longest of message, but I acknowledge and appreciate the support and input that um, people who follow my work or, or like my work um, bring to me to my attention. And I love it. I mean, who can't who can't not for someone to say they enjoyed something and then they have a, you know, a, a smart question about something that and of course, I want to engage with them. I love my fans and I appreciate them. I'll make sure to put all those links in the in the show notes so that it makes it easy for everyone to, to get in touch with you. And, and I think that's it. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for listening in. Take care of yourselves. And until next time.